Welcome to the Releaders Podcast. You are listening to episode 8 of the Keep It Real series with Releaders Top 50 keynote speaker and the CEO of We First, Simon Mainwaring. Simon advises the world's most successful and purposeful brands on how to lead the future. We have him on every single month to help you understand how to do just that. In today's episode, he covers how to avoid the dangers of cancel culture, provides a process for developing your brand's purpose, and to make sure that you stay light in your head. So with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, may I please welcome to you the eighth episode of the Keep It Real series with We First, Simon Mainwaring. Enjoy. Like for like an ad guy in this space for so many years, like yeah. what's like the Super Bowl like like yeah, for can... you? What does it mean to the ad guys? Yeah, and also, what is it like with the Olympics and the World Cup? I worked on both yeah. of those as well, and I can just speak to what is that process like behind the scenes, 100%. Yeah, I would love to hear about that. Yeah, because it's fun-ish. So, welcome, everyone. Uh, tune in here on, on Crowdcast. Uh, we've got on Simon Mainwaring, our recurring guest here on the Keep It Real series. Simon, how are you doing today? Really well. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you back, and you kind of just got to – insight about our conversation there just now here on crowdcast and that's the cool part about crowdcast you can come on go behind the scenes ask us questions for simon to answer after the show so if that's you you want to ask simon your questions for after the show come on over to crowdcast if you're watching this on linkedin uh enter in the chat box let us know where you're coming in from today um and be a part of this program folks um, also, we got a few links flying in here. Simon's posting his LinkedIn. Make sure you give uh, the man a follow on LinkedIn. It's a you know, great newsletter, great p- posts all the time. I learn a lot, uh, a wealth of information, all on the public domain, folks. So I'd highly encourage uh, you following Simon there, as well as uh, the Reelers podcast if you haven't subscribed already. But with that being said, Simon, let's just continue the conversation. As an ad sure. guy, what is the Super Bowl, the Olympics, these big events that draw so many eyeballs to the screen? What's it like in the war room behind the scenes? Behind the scenes, you can imagine there's higher stakes because of what's at stake. And so I was lucky enough to work at the ad agency Wyden and Kennedy as a writer on Nike. And, you know, you get to work on several briefs like that. I worked in the Olympics, the World Cup and and also the Super Bowl at various times. And in full disclosure, there wasn't on any of those occasions any of my ads that got up. But, you know, the reason for that is this. You get a brief like that and all the teams at once, you know, work on it furiously. And, you know, depending on which agency you're with, there's, you know, the creative director or the executive creative director who's going to give the nod to which ad gets up there. But it starts eight or nine months before the event because if you back out of the timeline of, you know, getting it out there and up on air and the production and the editing and the music and sound design and all of that, you can imagine the concept stage has to start very early because you've got to get it to the client. That's got to be sold internally. So timelines get very long very quickly. And what in my experience on all of these sort of large-scale events has been it is team against team. You've got an art director and you've got a writer and you, you line up there and you're standing outside and it's invariably a sort of a glass you know, conference room 
and you go in and you present your work and, uh, you know, you're watching the next team and they're like selling it and they're going for it and they're putting it out there and they're really kind of like speaking to the truth of the idea to they're very, very kind of creatively literate um, creative directors and executive creative directors. And then you go in and you give it your shot and then it kind of shakes out. You hear in the corridors which campaign is getting up and so on mm-hmm. and then it starts all over again the next week. And, you know, I remember working on the, you know, the Olympics um, on, for Nike uh, up at Wyden and it went on for months and everyone was just duking it out and duking it out. It's like a war of attrition. You are constantly like, who's going to survive? And, it, and you don't just have an idea. You blow it out. You blow it out with TV scripts, radio scripts, print, you know, all the different ways that this could come to life because these are these tentpole communication pieces. And it's interesting because it's not only the brief, it's a challenge, it's all the other teams. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, now we've got an idea. We kind of like it. But you're killing yourself to make it happen. And uh, then eventually the music stops at some point. The campaign is chosen, some amazing director. And, you know, one of the things is the directors and the production companies offer so much value and plus things to such a degree so often. They're not just executing visually through a certain media what they do. They really take the idea to a whole other level. And that's one thing. I, sometimes I don't think they get the credit for that, you know? Yeah, no doubt. And, and having produced a lot of videos, sometimes you start with the vision and then as it kind of works itself out, it starts to change and then you pick up on a couple of things. And yeah. What's interesting to me is that you have so much effort going into these commercials. And Simon, I got to tell you, I really wasn't that impressed with this year's Super Bowl commercial. You know what? I, I, would, I would agree with you. I, I watched them and, you know, watching television now is a different experience. Even in the last five years, we live these bifurcated, fractured, atomized lives across multiple screens at once. And if you look at the data, mom and dad are on their computers. They're watching television. The kids are on their phone. They're having multiple social media conversations about what's on the screen or otherwise. And it's almost like, you know, what's going on on television and the commercials within that are background noise to what is top of mind or front of mind in terms of your attention. And so it's a higher bar for a commercial to really stop you. And what's interesting about the Super Bowl is it's one of those things where everyone goes for the commercials. So everyone is predisposed to look at the commercials. I mean, one that struck me this year, I did like the writing in the Bruce Springsteen one for Jeep. Mm. You know, it got some press, some earned media because Bruce Springsteen was doing an ad outright. But more importantly, the copy where, you know, you've got a brand and a product which is being used as a platform to bring people together about finding that middle ground you know, when you're someone who cares about purpose like I am, I found that a very effective area. Um, others where they're just more comedic and they, they're sort of entertainment value, I think short-form content like that, 60 seconds, 90 seconds in a Super Bowl, I mean, it's a couple of gags, you know, and I, I, that, I feel a little bit underwhelmed by that. And I, I wasn't blown away by the commercials this year. One strange anecdote about what I was sharing about the um, Super Bowl thing is, you know, I won't say what agency, what time, what event, but I'd worked with somebody for a long time, like a period of over six months with somebody on the Olympics. And uh, they, um, you know, the work that we did didn't see the light of day. And that person ultimately, for whatever reasons, to- chose to, lo- to leave the agency. And what they did was they got all the ads that we'd written on the Olympics and bound them into books, published, by- bound books, and then walked in and just said to the person they spoke to, I resign and put this stack of books of scripts beautifully bound on the desk of that person and then left. And it was a very, um, I don't know, it was a very theatrical way to uh, 
exit a place um, when you do that. But uh, no, I, I was slightly underwhelmed by the commercials this year. And it was interesting when you look at not only the medium outright in these tentpole events like the Super Bowl, but then you look at how you had to manufacture, manufacture, almost duplicate the, the experience in a non-COVID year virtually. I think that was, it was interesting to watch them try and draw an, or create an equivalent of that. Do, do you think they got there? What do you think? Kevin? Yeah, I think there was a nice balance in between, okay, we're going to stay away from all the politicization. Uh, you know, some of the companies took the approach of, okay, we're not going to do an ad this year. We're going to put it toward the COVID relief. I saw Anheuser-Busch, uh, you know, sorry, not Anheuser-Busch, Budweiser did right. not do their first ad in the first time for 37 years. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of saw a nice balance, but with, and, and that's a good example, actually, with the Jeep ad is, is that Jeep ad got a lot of flack on social media. I thought it, did, it was a yeah. great ad. I thought it was about, uh, you know, unity kind of coming together, but the, the, you know, the lashback on social media seemed to be, you know, there's no perception of reality of what's actually going on. And that's a tough, that's a tough, uh, you know, thing to play there. It is tough. I mean, you know, every advertiser, every brand is hung, drunk and quartered out on social media now, either preemptively or as soon as it happens. And then it creates a narrative around as to whether people liked it or not. But um, I, I think here's the interesting thing. You know, we all know that adage that there is no such thing as bad publicity. So even when something people are beating you up, there's going to be more attention in and around whatever ad you've mm. created. The other thing is, you know, a lot of brands either choose to lean into being more purposeful these days or not. Those that don't lean into it, it comes at a great cost. Why? Because earned media, those free exposure, the articles, the press, all those things that you want and that are added value above what you spent on your commercial are found at the edges of conversations. Mm. If, you're a provo- if you're a purposeful brand, you're not going to do anyone, including yourself, any favors by staying in the middle of the fairway. You know, you can't be safe and just try and please everybody. As we've seen more and more and more around issues with brands, you have to have a point of view that is going to polarize your audience and you have to move the conversation forward, in which case you provoke discussion, you provoke contention. And so that drives the earned media, which is then of huge value to the brand, but it's an uncomfortable place for people to be. And I think what was interesting this year was some people leaned into their purpose more overtly like Jeep. Others did it by actually saying they're not going to participate and they're going to give the money that they would otherwise spend on a media buy for an ad to supporting first responders or whatever, you, you know, that might be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is sort of overt and other ways that you can actually be purposeful. But, yeah, the, the, the court of social media is very unforgiving, shall we say. You know, there's a lot of different brands that, you know, were kind of playing that court as well. Um, you know, do, do we do something with the times. Do we bring some humor into this? And and then you have Robin Hood. You have Robin Hood that had yeah. a whole fiasco with, you know, you know their whole mission. We're going to provide a, a platform for the person. Democratize access to. Demo- exactly. Yeah. Democratize yeah. access to trading. And and here we are not allowing people to. We're, gonna, we're going to manipulate the market essentially and not allow people to, you know, sell and trade on our platforms based on what we would think would be because of hedge fund money. Now they decided to run their advertisement mm-hmm. and they included a lot of diversity. They showed right. you know, the young people. Now 
Uh, it could be investing in relationships. It could be investing in, you know, not just stocks and, you know, whatever else. It was a nice, had this not had happened, it would have been a great ad. Now, what sure. are your thoughts on Robinhood and, and their kind of um, uh, idea to play an ad during the Super Bowl right after that? Yeah, I think, you know, they were caught in a very difficult position where, you know, the self-possession of folks on Reddit and otherwise that really kind of manipulated the market and they really took on, you know, the man, institutional investors, right. and it's really played out publicly and, and got a lot of media exposure. Now, they are, you know, responsible in as much as they're the platform that allowed that to happen, but it did really throw a spotlight on what their purpose is and what they should do. And they're caught in the middle because there's a lot of, you know, lawsuits and things coming their way because they suspended trading and all these different things going on. So I think their decision to go ahead was probably right because one of two things happened. If you pull out, you're almost leaning into this idea that you're culpable and that you've done something wrong and that the beat up that's going on with you in the press has, you know, forced you to pull your head in and, and sort of like pay, pay, for your, pay your dues. When you actually go back out there with a commercial that, as to what you stand for, you know, you're leaning into the fact that, you know, you had the intention to do the right thing. You want to keep your public presence out there. You're not cowering in the marketplace. And this issue is not going to overwhelm you. And so I think they probably did the right thing. And I think they were unlucky to be what the platform, which was the first experiment of this type. You've never seen institutional and retail investors pitted against each other like that. And, you know, it really was a power play between the two. And I, and I think it's very, very, it's just another, it's mapping across from where you've seen Gen Z or millennials push back on the climate crisis, or you've seen, you know, employees push back on brands and hold their leadership accountable. This is all about the rising role of all stakeholders in this, this growing participatory multi-stakeholder capitalism. And so here we had retail investors pushing back against these big institutional investors. And in all these other examples I cited, you've got regular people, whether they're an employee, a supplier, whatever, pushing back the same way you saw employees at Google, employees at Amazon, employees at Facebook, push back over issues like climate commitments and pay scales and, and you know, gender bias. You know, so I think everybody's waking up that they have a voice, they have a platform, the institutions that might otherwise be kind of, you know, the leaders of change are failing in different ways, you know, failing them, in which case they're taking it in their own hands. Hmm. That's interesting. And, and I would agree. I think Robin Hood obviously made a great business decision. I think you said no publicity is bad publicity. They gained more users in that month because of that bad smear campaign than they ever sure. had before. And now they come out with this ad that they're a great organization. Let's hope yeah. you know they can fulfill that purpose and, and manifest that. But it brings me to this cancel culture idea that we have spoken about on the show many yeah. times. Um, and it just goes to show, okay, well, how influential is the market out there, the people that you just said is a platform, realizes they have a voice. And as a company, what do you need to do to lower that risk? I saw in your newsletter, you said purpose-driven brands are 70%, 77% less likely to be canceled if they have a purpose-driven mission, entirely canceled. Yeah, what I think really the root of the issue is you need to control the narrative. What does that mean? Mm. No brand gets it all right 
all the time or all wrong. Where you really get in trouble is when you haven't articulated the role you want to play in the world. And one of three things happen. Either misinformation fills that information vacuum. So suddenly your competitors or anyone may be saying bad things about you because you haven't explained what you stand for. They presume that this misinformation is true. Or secondly, they go, well, wait a second. You don't care about the same thing because you're not talking about what you do. So if I'm an employee, if I'm a customer, if I'm a retailer and I know what I care about and you're saying nothing, then obviously you don't care about the same thing. Mm. Or the third alternative is you can actually be articulate about what you stand for. And that doesn't mean you're right all the time. It means you do control the narrative. How? By speaking to not just what you're good at, but also where you're falling short. And I'll give you an example. If you look at Patagonia, which is you know, lauded as one of the most purposeful and, and authentic brands out there, rightly so, if you look at their Footprint Chronicles campaign, you can actually put in the SKU number of a jacket. You know, what is the, the product SKU number? And it can tell you what the carbon footprint of that jacket is. And if you look at the, you know, with all the trucking and all the costs that go into that in terms of the environment. And then at the bottom of the page, they had the good, the bad, and what we think. So they tell you what they're doing well. They tell you what areas need to improve. And then they tell you what their opinion is about this. And it might be the chemical dyes need to be changed. There's too much trucking involved with the carbon footprint or whatever it might be. But you, if you get out ahead of the media, if you get out ahead of that cancel culture and speak to not only what you're doing well, but also where you're falling short, and you actually don't see that as the negative, but as an opportunity to collaborate, co-create, and actually have dialogue, you can reach out to people and say, listen, these five or six of the you know, ingredients in our product are really responsible, but these areas we're really struggling with, and we're looking to innovation to do that, and we're working with these partners to do and design it. And, and so you can suddenly, I actually find that the, that the public more broadly is very forgiving if you're just honest and transparent. So to answer your question, if you really want to navigate cancel culture effectively, be articulate about the role you're playing in the world, but make sure you control the narrative by speaking to what you're doing well, but also what you're not doing well. And see that as a positive opportunity for collaboration, not as something to, be, to hide or be ashamed of. Mm. Now, Simon, do you think that when it comes to purchasing an actual product in a store, right? do you think customers are making price-sensitive decisions or do you think they're making decisions based on uh, you know, an evoked set of a philosophical mission-driven company? It's a great question. I just had to remember what a store is like. Is that where people go and scream at each other about yeah, mask they've... protocol? And, yes. You know, gosh, Parts. it's so crazy. I actually this weekend went out up the coast here, out of LA and went somewhere and there were so many people about and I was just like intimidated, like almost terrified by seeing all these people in one place at one time. <laughs> um, but no, in a store, I think there's no one, there's no blanket rule for it. But I think the conscious mind is a play as well as the unconscious mind. And what do I mean? People can't always articulate what a brand stands for or what difference they're making in the world. But they do know emotionally, chemically in their own brain whether they like that brand for some reason, whether they can articulate it or not. So if you're standing there in a whole big row of soap, the most parity product out there in the world, it's just the same stuff with different fragrances. There's a part of you that goes, I'm going to get Dove because I like what they're doing around real beauty. Or maybe I don't know what that is, but you have a point of view. You're a known quantity. You have articulated something at one of the brand touch points 
that resonated as to the shared value with that person or not. Now, the data changes all the time as to whether people are driven purely by price and product benefits and so on. But increasingly, if you look at the demographics, millennials and Gen Z, as well as moms and all these other folks, they really are much more conscious shoppers to the point that they will pay a premium for a product that is more responsible, organic, certified, fair trade, you know, all of these different things. And they're doing that not just because, you know, it's a better product, because it makes them feel better about themselves. It gives them agency, a role in making a difference and creating that future they want for their family and others. So I'd have to have the latest specific data, but I wouldn't be surprised if the younger demographics coming through and their disproportionate amount of disposable income and their conscious consumerism would mean that, you know, increasingly the purpose, the impact a brand is having is truly determinant in what what purchases are made. Sam, so when you're dealing with uh, brands that you're helping out for these yeah. campaigns. Yep. Um, I'm just going to take a couple of references of the ads. We saw a lot of characters that represented something. We saw Edgar Scissorhands, right? He can't get anything right. He chops everything up, but you oh. know, Chevrolet, I think it was Chevrolet, comes out with a uh, Cadillac, comes out with a hands-free driving car, right? right. Works, works for Edgar. You know, so when, it see, when you see someone in your own shoes and you can relate to that person, you may able, be able to go in and buy a product. Uh, Sam Adams beer. Oh, it's your Boston cousin, right? That, right. Did, that does did something wrong. He's you know, he's a he's a you know, hooligan, right? How much do you work with brands in terms of helping them identify a personality that people can see themselves sure. in versus uh, maybe just doing good just to do good? Yeah, it's interesting. The, the one, the, the two should go hand in hand, right? And I'll give you an example. You know, the purpose of a brand, it shouldn't be all this sanctimonious, preachy sort of thing. It can have a lot of personality and fun to it. For example, look at Ben and Jerry's and look at their Colin Kaepernick flavor that just came out, you know, about changing the world. You know, there they are not only communicating their higher order commitment to racial justice or, you know, social justice, for example, around police violence against um, people of color and so on, but they actually put their product literally to work to that end with great humor and irreverence and, and all that sort of thing. Um, then think about it from the media lens. Like Patagonia isn't just trying to kind of promote a jacket that they need to sell to build their business. They're doing documentaries about public trust and public lands. And, you know, they're, they're creating very different kind of media expressions of the brand voice. And also I think every brand should think about it like this. It's not if you're purposeful, you need to be this sort of, passionate activist that is suing the president like Patagonia. You have a spectrum from being an ally where you're aligned around certain values to being an advocate where you're advocating for change in a certain way to being an activist where you're really playing an active role in creating and driving and scaling that change. So every brand's got a spectrum. So think about it like Kind Bars, which is always has this movement around be kind, you know, all the way through to a Ben and Jerry's ending white suprematism or, you know, Dick's Sporting Goods destroying $5 million worth of assault rifles because it's just the right thing to do or Patagonia, you know, suing the president. There's a whole spectrum within that which each brand gets to choose from. Now, it doesn't diminish your role if you're less activist by nature. It has to be authentic to who you are. And so I think, you know, You've got these individual tactics, you've got these different media opportunities, and you've got the spectrum to choose from. 
The main thing is that you define your purpose and walk your talk in an authentic way that is a true reflection of not only the founders, but the aggregate of the company, the spirit of the company and how it wants to show up in the world. And there's no right or wrong, but sometimes we do in our work with clients, they're like, well, does this mean I've got to go and sort of pick a fight with someone? And it's like, no, let's work out what your brand voice should be. Interesting. I know you shared a little bit about that last time we spoke too. It's like, you know, as an ad guy for 20 years, we did so much 20 research. long years. Look at these lines. It's from staring years, at a brief just forever, going, oh my God, lifetime. what's the answer? Yeah. Well, you were saying sometimes we just ask the wrong questions and it's all inside, but you're inside that label. It's difficult. Yeah. You need someone on the yeah. outside to read it for you, of who you are yeah. as a brand. Now, when it comes to process mm-hmm. for producing content, like how much weight do you put on a process in terms of like, let's just say copywriting, um, a brand script that you kind of follow when, it, when you're trying to get out what is in the inside of that label? Yeah, it's, gosh, that is a wormhole. I spent 20 years doing this and was lucky enough to work at a lot of the best agencies in the US and London and Australia. And I can share with you a few insights. Wow, what a question. Um, So, you know, I was a writer, creative director and worldwide creative director over the course of those 18 years all around the world. And so one thing, the first thing that really struck me and that stayed with me in terms of the process was something I learned from Marcella Serpa who was, um, you know, one of the most awarded ad guys out of Brazil in the world and, you know, Javianas and all these brands he worked on. And I heard him speak once when I was like a little wet whippersnapper, new to the business, all ambitious and so on. And um, he said, stay light in your head. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? And then I went to Ligas Delaney and worked under Tim Delaney, who was notorious for being the toughest kind of boss in London in the whole sort of Charlotte Street kind of advertising mecca that it was. And you overthink and you actually paralyze your brain because you think about it so much. You know, you stare at the page until drops of blood appear on your forehead. And I really understood what he meant, which is stay light in your head, stay playful, because you have to have that sort of um, that freestyle nature, that sort of um, the lightness in your head to allow you to bounce around ideas. And I really struggle with that um, for a long time. Another insight that I would share, and this is kind of answering your question, but I think this is important to share. Another one was working on, after working on Adidas and other brands in London, I went and worked at Wyden on Nike, as I said. And uh, one of the things I learned there is, and no one teaches you this stuff. It's in the air and it's all around you. And you're like, God damn it, why didn't someone tell me that before? Because it's so much easier when you understand it. Mm. So that's why I'm sharing it, is that when you really want to kind of move the needle forward for a brand, Don't try and prove to somebody what your product does or what the benefit is. Assume what you want to prove and then demonstrate the effect that will have. And I'll give you an example. You know, I worked on a a Nike outdoor gear campaign to encourage you to go running in the rain. Um, It's called Enjoy the Weather. And instead of trying to tell people that that gear would keep you dry and allows you to go running outside, the campaign was all about enjoy the weather where you presume that you will be comfortable and dry outside mm. and then you dimensionalize what fun that could be. And the ads are all about how much fun it can be out in this crazy bad weather. But assume what you want to prove and apply your creativity there rather than trying to prove what your product does. And if you really have a look at a lot of the most effective campaigns out there that take 
the mind further forward and actually convince you that the product does what it says it does. Why? Because it's assumptively built into the communication in the first place. It's mm. not trying to prove anything, mm. but rather it's making real for you. It's manifesting the benefits of that presumption. Mm. And it's far more compelling in terms of, you know, um, bring, bringing a, a product or um, brand's benefits to life. But in terms of the process, um, I think it's very hard right now. The media landscape is so fractured. You know, it's like looking through a kaleidoscope and you keep clicking through it and there's more and more. God damn it. You know, there's Clubhouse now. Really? Now we've got to do audio weekly shows and really, you know, we've, all, we've already got too many um, campaigns. But here, or here's what I would say. The real power comes through distilling down the communication you want to make as a function of your purpose into two or three simple words that encapsulate the idea. And that encapsulation needs to be on the face of it, very simple, very emotional, and innately shareable. So I get it. I, it affects me emotionally. And I can explain it to somebody else. Why? Because you want to make, make sure everyone who sees it can share it with others. So simple, emotional, and innately shareable. But the art of it, the real, the, the real magic is the compressed complexity that goes into that, the compressed complexity, and, and which means you can unpack it. You can unpack it for all stakeholders, all products, all regions. Let me give you an example. When um, bank, uh, bank Capital bought half of Tom's in 2015, mm. um, they did some research with Boston Consulting Group, and we were kindly asked to come in and do a workshop and then asked to look at um, – Tom's and its communication, and we gave them a tagline called for one comma another, for one comma another. Simple, I intuitively get that. Emotional, oh, for one another, it's innately emotional and, and innately shareable because it's an easy idea that you can really share with someone. Right. But there was a lot of compressed complexity built into it because leadership and employees were there for one another. You buy one product and another is given. Employees in the U.S. and employees around the world were there for one another. Tom's and its giving partner, World Vision, were there for one another. The private sector and the public sector are there for one another. The way of being they own in the world is living for one another. And that could apply to shoes. That could apply to the eyewear they were doing at that time. That could apply to the coffee. That could apply to suppliers, employees, retailers, consumers, and the broader marketplace. And it could apply anywhere around the world because living for one another can look very different in Cape Town than it does in Dusseldorf. Mm. And the whole art of this is to have something simple, emotional, and innately shareable that, so that all the other communications and expressions, the tactical activations you're talking about, can ladder up to that simple, singular, tentpole idea. Why? So that it all has that sort of foundational keystone to it and every different stakeholder, internal or external, can speak to that and communicate it and everyone will know what the brand is about because it's all about living for one another. And in that case, you know, we work very closely with the Bank Capital Group, the Boston Consulting Group and the, the brand council at Tom's and, and, and Blake McCoskey, the founder, and he actually got for one another tattooed on his life, left bicep. So um, and he posted that on Twitter. So, you know, we ask that of all of our clients to make sure that they actually go and get whatever the result is. It might be long copy, whatever tattooed on the body it it makes a lot of sense and actually what just comes to my mind is um seth goldman sharing that uh, i think you were at the release impact awards he was sharing about yeah. 
how honest he, some customer got the T tattooed on his arm. That's yeah. how you know, you know, the, the logo, the mission, the purpose, what you just explained has struck a chord with a, with a customer. Yeah. What's also interesting is this though. He was talking about the eat for eat the change logo, his new company, eat the change. Yeah. And he said, you know, we wanted to make it like this and this, and that, but we want to express all these different, whatever. He's like, people see it as a yin yin sign. People see it as a wave in a beach. Some people see it as a sun. Some people see it as a smiley face. To right. me, it doesn't matter as long as you align it with, you know, uh, a, a company that's in it to change you know, behaviors that ultimately changes the world. What are yeah. your thoughts on that in terms of, you know, maybe some dissonance and and how people see your logo? You know, logos are perhaps the most condensed or compressed expression of your brand, both from a visual but also just a broader communication yeah, point yeah. of view. But now it's more dimensional than ever. There used to be, you know, the notion of a logo was it was set in stone and it became iconic because it's been around forever. The Coca-Cola logo, the McDonald's logo. And then in more recent times, as the media landscape proliferated, you saw logos that would not only change over time or across channels, but change daily. Look at the Google logo that is always reinventing itself when you go to Google each day, you know, and all the, you know, uh, the, the new art museum in New York and, and uh, you know, new museum, sorry, and some MTV logos, you saw them actually be dynamic and they would change and they'd be informed by what the relevant context was, you know, the, the band behind them or the venue they were playing in. So it took on a dynamic aspect. One of the most interesting logos I've seen of late it's an Indian company, and I'm so annoyed that the name escapes me right now. But their logo is three concentric circles. And those circles are actually data points that measure the impact they're having across three different parameters. And they do it month by month. And so the logo morphs and shapes and like a lava lamp evolves. And it's all a living, breathing expression of their impact, which I find fascinating and, and adds true integrity to it. And so the more messy it looks, the better in a sense, but it's a living, breathing expression of the purpose of the company. Uh, so I think logos are, you know, logos are like, I think the values, the purpose of a company are like the lungs, the bellows of a company. And I think, you know, in the same way, this sounds really lofty, but the logo is the breath of mm -hmm. that company. It's just how it manifests itself out to the world. It should embody, encapsulate, really sort of, um, you know, just be instilled with the essence of the company. And the more dynamic and living and, living and breathing you can make it, often the more interesting it can be these days. Uh, it, I like that. I really like that. And I think what you brought up on the last podcast about, you know, if you can't think of things that you want to be for, what are you against? Yeah. When you're at the party, what do you, what do you just keep blabbing on about that? You, right. Someone says, you got to stop talking about yeah. that. What yeah. are some things, Simon, during a development process that you absolutely want to avoid? Of a campaign or of a... Campaign. Of a, of a of campaign, a, let's take logo design and a, a mission statement, for instance. I think, you know, a lot of brands are resistant to change, in which case they just incrementally sort of iterate whatever their past logo might be or, you know, basically they stay in their comfort level. And I think, you know... There is nothing more dangerous today than staying safe because really what's the cost for brands today is their relevance to an increasingly challenged future 
and a fast-changing world in which we live as a function of technology, demographics, all of these different things. And so in terms of process and creating a campaign or a logo, you really need to be bold and you need to have an appetite for risk. You know, it was interesting. I did work for a couple of years on Adidas in London and then, you know, several years on Nike up in Portland. And, I would, and people might say, well, what's the difference of working on Nike? And the difference was their ad- appetite for risk. They really, at, at that time, it may be different today, I don't know, but Nike would always fail forward. And that was the responsibility of the clients. You know, they would, you know, there were many meetings where a client would go, well, I'm not sure if this is going to work and it could really backfire, but let's do it and let's see. Right. And I think that's very instructive as to how we all need to think. We have, and the, the, one more point I want to make on that. Sure. You know, if you have a mindset when you're creating a logo or a campaign, one of the most powerful things you can do is stop building on the past and thinking, well, okay, this is what we've done, so what, what are we going to do next? But rather reverse out of the future. Mm. So you spend time and say, okay, in three to five years' time, where do I want the company to be? What role are we going to play in our industry? How are we going to be you know, a, a differentiated leader? And how, what sort of mind share do we want to own with people? And really codify that. Get that out of your head, everyone's head, and put it off on the wall. And then you capture, whether it's the logo, the campaign, capture that, express that, because that future will be here faster than any of us imagined. And really, the past has less to do with the future than ever, because everything's changing so quickly. You know, the world today is unrecognizable from 15 months ago because of COVID and the Black Lives Matter protest and climate and so much more. So are we going to sit there and say, well, let's look at what we were doing in, I don't know, 2019 and incrementally iterate off that? Or do we look clear-eyed at the reality of the world we're in today, project forward as to the future, we, our best guess of what that future can look like, and really capture that? Because the, the ground is moving under our feet so quickly. So embody that, bottle that up, and you'll find that the future will be here faster than you ever imagined. And if you've really cast your line out to the future, it can, the future can come back to you and you rise to meet that moment, and then you're an authentic expression of where the world is going. Mm, powerful. And one of those companies that that have come, you know, flying in super fast has been Clubhouse. Sure, uh, it, it's an app you have to be invited to as well, which is very unique. Now, I got invited to it back in I don't know 2017. One of the founding people, I get it, Kevin. I right, get it. right. A long yeah. time ago, I would say a long time ago. I'd say like five, six months ago. But still, my friend was saying, "Hey, this is the next big thing. You got to get on it." I really enjoyed the app. Had a great, you know, time on it, yeah. and then kind of just. You kind of just let it go. And then next thing I know, Simon Mainwaring is on uh, the Clubhouse. Next thing I know, uh, people that have come on the show are on Clubhouse. What are your thoughts on Clubhouse and kind of where that's going? Yeah, it's interesting your point about community. Firstly, notice that they didn't build the community. Right. They gave you agency to build the community by giving you an invitation to invite someone else. So what they're doing is they're trading on the intimacy of your connection with others yes. rather than on what connections they can make themselves. That's very instructive in terms of how your brand becomes a movement, how you build a community. You'll also notice that at the intersection of you know things like Clubhouse, all of these platforms, there is content, there is community, and there is commerce. That's really the three things that come together. And with that in mind, I mean, I think Clubhouse is interesting. I think it's almost a relief. I think people are so tired of these unrealistic, you know, perfected images that we're all giving of our own lives where you only put the best photos of the best holidays when everyone is just keeping it together. 
we're all this far away from just losing our, you know, and everyone's weary of all of that. And the whole Instagram, I feel like I should be in a bikini at some resort hotel posing all the time. It seems that that's what what all the cool kids are doing. But no, I think Clubhouse, by being auditory alone, just allowed people to kind of do away with all of that. And the premise is, you know, substantive conversations, how they are substantive. You get to curate them yourself. You get to decide what you want to talk about. And people can self-qualify themselves by joining that conversation. And so, again, not only in building the community, but in the content itself, they're giving agency to the members. So what they're doing is they're co-creating a platform because you're sharing the responsibility. You're, you're birthing it together. As people lift, lift themselves up as a platform and invite their friends in, you're co-creating the sort of social fabric that they're weaving together right now. I have found it to be interesting. I haven't had much time to get on it. I've probably only gone in five or six times. I'm one of those people who tiptoes in and goes, leave quietly, have to go and do something. I don't know, you know, between family and work and everything like that, it's hard to fit it all in. But um, I have found people to be very generous, those who are hosting the different rooms, very gracious towards each other. I think it's been very um, inclusive in terms of the mix of people that are there and the different points of opinion and people kind of not agreeing, but really treating it as a safe space to have substantive dialogues. I hope it doesn't, you know, become commercialized and everyone's up there going, Hey, have I got a course for you and click the button on the top, right. And, you know, if it does that, they'll be um, signing their own death warrant. Uh, but I, I, I hope, I hope, you know, what the opportunity is right now in such a divisive time for this country around the world and disparity of wealth and all of these issues, if there is a platform that is a safe space that allows people to come together and, and have facilitated dialogues that are, that are authentic um, and that are substantive, then I think that's a great thing. And it'll be interesting to see, to your point, whether it's going to be this, oh, my God, it's a sensation now. And then in four months, it's like, oh, do you remember Clubhouse? Or did you hear that they just raised $500 million? Did you hear about their IPO for $3.5 billion and then it comes and goes? Or whether it's going to be a mainstay like so many of the other platforms. And the jury's out on that one. But the flight to participation is strong amongst a lot of people with large communities. So it seems to be going well. I mean, it seems like there's always another social media that's coming out that's going to have a, you know, have a foothold and then... You know, there'll, there'll be the influencers that get in, that get on early, that get the momentum, get the followers. But, you know, where are all the Instagram influencers now? I mean, they're still there, but are they as important? Is their value the same? Is what they're talking about the same? Is the, is the engagement the same? Facebook, when it came out, you know, you're, you're investing in Facebook and then now it's like, who's really posting? You know, you speak with anyone who's under the age of 16. Oh, it's a, it's for my grandparents. You know, exactly. It's, those, it's, it's just for groups now. It's uh, for QAnon and all those things. It's like, it's not, not where you want to be right now at the point in time. So, you know, it kind of just goes to the question of even if there is a next one, even if it does do bad, like really, what's really the point here? And if you're an influencer, what are you kind of thinking about in terms of uh, how you want to position yourself on that platform? Well, I think, you know, we've got to think of a timeline here because I remember when I wrote my first book, We First, Facebook was just coming out and everyone was going, oh, do you think this will never, never work? And what is Facebook and blah, blah, blah. And there was nothing else, no Twitter, nothing. Over time, we have seen these social media platforms increase in number, but also go through this very, uh, now in hindsight, 
understandable journeys where they go, wow, this is working. Look at the good it can do when it can bridge the gap, you know, create this social fabric, collapse time and distance, and you can just be with people wherever they are in the world. But then, then it became the issues around privacy. And then it became the issue of, you know, exploiting data and really selling that data to marketers. And we've seen all the issues in and around Facebook and, and others around that. And, you know, to the point that it's, it, these have been sort of places where groups with bad intent have really got together and proliferated and you've seen it all around the, the election cycle and so on. Now, that's one journey. But at different times, other platforms have come, come along, like WhatsApp and all, all, all the other different platforms. And they've had the benefit of hindsight to see, okay, where, where are we in the maturity and sophistication of not only the technology, but the conversation around the role of that technology in people's lives. I think Clubhouse can benefit and is audio for a good reason, which is it feels less potentially exploitative of people. Mm. And I think it, you know, is less about the visual dimension to it, which has done a lot of damage, um, whether it's Instagram or Facebook in terms of people's own happiness and depression and identity and self-worth, because it looks like everyone else is having a perfect life, especially amongst younger demographics. You know, I've got an 18 and a 21 year old daughter. And so, you know, I think looking forward, I think the integrity of your intent is everything. Because if you, here's the difference. If you're coming out with a plan, I can't do this. There you go. If you come out of the gate like this and you have a lower integrity of intent where you want to exploit it and make market, like just go to market, you'll go like this, go like that. But if your integrity of intent is more pure, it won't look much different now, but over time, you're going to increase Mm. because you won't lose people who will walk away from you because they feel like they're being sold to or that the platform is sold out. Right. And so any brand today, the integrity of your purpose, the integrity of your intent and your action is absolutely critical. And that is especially true of these platforms that make that possible themselves. And so my hope for Clubhouse is their commitment is to people and honest dialogue. And they're very, because they've got to have a business model. They've got to make money out of this. But they're very mindful and choiceful about the way they go about that and to really think about maybe there's an opportunity for social media platforms to create a a co-creative way that people can decide how they can generate money as a function of the issues that they're speaking to or something rather than it just be a sellout to advertisers. You know, I'd be very interested to see what their short-term, mid-term plan is. But, you know, if we all start seeing ads popping up here and there and someone mentions travel and suddenly hotels in Hawaii, that's where it's going to be like, peace out. Yeah, yeah. And that's what's so scary, right? It's like, you know, Instagram, what a great app. And then all, like next thing you know, there's a there's a store app, you know, um, folder on there. You're getting sold advertisements. You're getting sent yeah. suggested posts. It's yeah. listening to your voice. It's not where you want to be uh, as, as a user of that organ, you know, of that, no. of that app. Where, where you do know- you see this like digital advertising going then? Like, is there... Or, or as a, a company, do you have to innovate in order to get those eyeballs, i.e. Snapchat filters? You, you're mm-hmm. you're collaborating with the company to give them something they want versus right. just selling them, like you said, the what of the company. Yeah, I think, you know, we've all made a deal with the devil in terms of social media because, you know, absolutely, once, absolutely. Once, they, once they have this information, you know, you know, our data is up for grabs and people don't really kind of look deeply at those privacy things and so on. I think, you know, I think 
The nice thing about being purposeful as a brand is not only you self-determine where you want to go, what you should do and what you shouldn't do, but it also course corrects you in terms of what content you should put out there and how you should participate. I think there's a baseline that you need to show up in all these platforms where you know, your customers are and where the eyeballs are. But increasingly, I find that brands are receiving the greatest value by through earned media by showing up in different ways that demonstrate their authentic commitment to their stated purpose. So, you know, Timberland's doing a 50 million tree planting initiative or, you know, the brands I mentioned before, Ben and Jerry's and others and so on. You know, all of these brands are not sitting there going, what's the best play on Instagram for this? That's the tail wagging the dog. They're sitting there saying, how do we show up most meaningfully? And so some brands didn't put an ad up in the Super Bowl, but they generated earned media like press coverage because they put their money elsewhere. And so, you know, into meaningful um, efforts that are aligned with their purpose around COVID and more. And so I think sometimes if you, here's the thing, if you really just try and please everyone, you're going to please no one. And if you try and back out of what your perceived consumer wants, what are you going to do if they want something different tomorrow and so on? You're letting the tail wag the dog. Instead, you've really got to sort of, it's like, how would I put this? It's like walking to a party. If you walk into a party, remember we used to have parties and people right. would get together and they'd hug each other when they, they said hello and they'd make out in the corner? Right. Another lifetime. Mm. Anyway, you walk into a party and if you walk around and talk to everyone in that room and try and please them, it's like, oh, really? That's fantastic. Oh, that's right. oh yeah, and you, you know, you're changeable with every single person. Individually, they may like you, but in terms of awareness as to who you are, you're whatever they want you to be. Mm. There's a bolder choice, which is to walk in and be yourself authentically, and you will gravitate towards certain people. And certain people will really connect with you because you care about the same thing, share the same values, whatever. And you will stay in contact with them and you'll build a relationship. And I deeply believe that brands are really, um, they get the response they want as a function of how clear eye they are about who they are authentically and how self-assured they are when they go to market. You know, brands like Nike and Ben and & Jerry's and Patagonia and all these other brands, they're not sitting there going, what do people want me to be? They're sitting there going, who are we and how should we show up most authentically in this circumstance? And the real trick there is like, you know, when I give you examples, this doesn't seem like theory. When Patagonia years ago did that first ad, don't buy this jacket on Black Friday. Everyone goes, oh, my God, that is the smartest marketing we have ever seen. No, it's not. (laughs) It is actually them saying, what is the most meaningful expression of our purpose on the number one commercial day of the year? That's who they are. That's who they are. When you let your purpose drive your decisions, your actions, your media choices, all your competitors will sit there and go, oh, my God, how did they think of that? They weren't thinking of it through the lens of a media channel or an advertising campaign. They were thinking it in term, thinking of it in terms of how they most authentically show up and then what are the appropriate channels across which to share it. And I think so many times we don't either know ourselves or trust it enough to leverage that and put it to work in ways that will stand out in your category because it's the integrity of your intent and your actions that are driving it. Mm. That's what I think. It, it's, it's great. It's meaningful. It, it makes a lot of sense. And I feel like a lot of people overlook that as well. It's like, like you said, with the Patagonia example, he just, great marketing. No, nah, it's actually, that's just who they are. That's yeah, who they've no. been, and now you yeah, no. see And I mean, I've talked to Ben and Jerry's folks many sense. times and, um, you know, 
and Patagonia, they all, sometimes they go, what is everyone going on about? We don't really get it. We just care about these issues and we're going to commit to those issues authentically. That might mean we march. That might mean we do a partnership with Tesla. That might mean we make a funny ice cream flavor. But we're just walking our talk in what we do. They're, and, you know, when you're – here's a funny thing. When you live and breathe what your purpose is and there's an alignment between who you are and what you do on a daily basis, it becomes second nature. But for anyone else who's always second-guessing the marketplace or reverse engineering out of consumers or trying to leverage the latest, you know, media platform, they're always second-guessing themselves. Right. And I think that's where you lose out. And that's what I love about podcasts too. It's like, it's just so natural. It's natural for me, one. And then two, I think it's old school. I think it's really just, it's not trying to sell you anything. We really, we don't have any advertisements on this other than just, you know, hey, we just try to tell these, you know, the people listening to this, hey, if you want to follow, leave a review, let us know. Like, it's really actually going to help us out. Like, sure, they understand that. Um, but it's yeah. more so of just, it's the authenticity part of that, that we have, I think, baked into our company that I just love about the show. People come on the show and they just keep it real. No, it's true. I mean, I have been a part of Real Leaders for a while because of the quality of its content. Um, I think, you know, someone was actually asking the other day around media, I think it was a client or someone like, what's the best, fastest through line through all of this noise, clutter, channels and all that. And it really comes down to the quality of your content. And that could be if you could be a CPG in terms of what you're talking about, your product, or it could be like real leaders putting it out there. I think quality always shines through. And I know that sounds really cliched, but people invest their time where they get value and they quickly you know, sense someone who's just trying to sell them on something or, or something else. And I think, um, I think it's counterintuitive, but it's almost needed to slow down to really invest in whatever role you want to play and do that as well as you can and then do that consistently and the people will show up. Mm. People will show up and they will stay and then they will take on a life of its own as they become nodes in your network and you can collaborate with them to build out whatever movement, platform, community you're trying to build. But in the absence of that, it's almost impossible and you're just getting churned. Someone came, they left. Someone came, they left and they're not referring you to anyone else. And you're spending all this money on social media and all these channels, pay to play. And you're like, we're two years down the track. We're no further ahead. Yeah. Why isn't this working? Because we're doing all the right things. Right, right. Yeah. And, and you know, I, Simon, I appreciate you showing up today. And, and when you did show up today, you were telling me you just finished a book. Congratulations. What? Tell us our Thank audience you. a little bit about your history of writing books and what's coming next. No, I'm really relieved today. And I'm a much nicer human being to be around for my wife and family and team at We First. I mean, it's been um, for five years I've been trying to get a book out, but I, it's really been hard with family and putting family first and running a business and all of that. And I just, I just struggled and couldn't get there. Um, I made a decision at the beginning of COVID to really come out the other side with something substantive to show for it. And I had the proposal in place and, and um, you know, I, the finished manuscript is actually going in this Thursday. So, you know, the book is called Lead With We. The book is called Lead With We. And you can go to leadwithwe.com and just put in your name and you can hear about it first when it comes out. It's coming out later in the year. But it's really a book about the future of collaborative leadership and how we work together in new ways to drive growth, relevance, and impact through business. And we've been lucky enough over the last 10 years of We First to work with all these amazing companies and entrepreneurs and business leaders and so on. 
And that, that gives you something that others don't get, which is a line of sight for this pattern recognition about what's working. And we've been lucky enough to work with Tom's and Timberland and Virgin Unite and so many brands. So this book really pulls it all together in a very actionable way and, and shows you not only what we need to do to have a better chance at a brighter future, but how you can drive growth and relevance to that end. Because increasingly our life is going to be defined by these issues we're facing, in which case there's going to be more pressure on brands to show up in meaningful ways. So how do you build your business in that context? How do you drive growth when you've got to solve for these large social and environmental issues as well? So, you know, check out leadwithwe.com and you'll be the first to know about it. And I'm a happy camper. And on uh, this next weekend, which also happens to be my birthday, um, I am going to get, I am going to go and have, the sweetest tasting drink because I don't need to stare at my screen gazillion hours a day for a while, which is really great. So thanks for mentioning it. Well, congratulations, my friend. I'm very happy for you. I know you've been working really hard on this book. And, you know, sometimes these podcasts, I've got to listen to two or three times again just to kind of digest everything that you you put on me. Because sometimes in the episode, you know, I'm thinking of questions asked at the end. Yeah, you've got to fully don't absorb, you know, the material. So I can't wait for this book to come out to have all your words and messages articulated down some fine print. It's going to be a, a special thing. Um, Thank you. So, Simon, any, any last words today? I, again, these episodes always fly by. Uh, we, we do, folks, we do this every single month uh, for the Keep It Real series, and we're going to continue to keep it going. So, last words now, Simon, for any uh, for any. I don't know. I'd say I'm, I'm optimistic, and here's a couple of reasons why. Because it's been a really tough 12 months for everybody, just so disheartening and soul-destroying for so many reasons. You know, in the U.S., at least, you know, there are some numbers dropping in terms of loss of life and, and, you know, people with COVID. And there's a long way to go with the vaccines in the face of, you know, the variants and so on. But good news after a long time. Mm. Then we've had, you know, the U.S. rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, which is important from a participation point of view, but also from an optics point of view that, you know, arguably the largest economy in the world still is invested and in, in going for it. And that's a great thing for our future. Also, if you look at what happened at Davos, the World Economic Forum, a few weeks ago, you know, where heads of state, world leaders, business leaders come together, and it was really a deep and shared commitment to stakeholder capitalism, this idea that we're all in this together and business needs to work for everyone. And then finally, you know, in addition to that, we saw the fourth annual letter from Larry Fink, who is, you know, the CEO of the largest money management company in the world that manages around $9 trillion in assets. And, you know, this annual letter is a real bellwether for the entire you know, stock markets around the world and financial services industry. And Larry Fink came out and said, we really need to commit to stakeholder capitalism. We need to address the climate emergency. We need to to work together to keep global warming below two degrees Celsius. And for that to come from the person who has the greatest incentive to think about profit for profit's sake and to not think this way is a very important signal to the rest of the world. And why is that important? What's happening right now is for the first time in my living kind of recollection, we are seeing the requisite coalition of stakeholders coming together for the first time. Suppliers, employees, customers, consumers, investors, both institutional investors and retail investors, all wanting the same thing, which is we've got to fix our future. And so up till now, we may say brands are doing good, but consumers are still buying plastic or consumers want organic things, but suppliers weren't providing them. 
if you don't have all of those people at the table, none of it works. But now we have all the people at the table for the first time we can offer a viable alternative to the way capitalism is, has been practiced for the last several decades at great cost to the environment, our future, people's lives, and so on. So I'm very excited about what's happening. I deeply believe in the innate goodness of humanity, people, each of us individually. I deeply believe in our fundamental, undeniable connection to the planet. It's hardwired chemically in our bodies and so on. And I, I, I'll be damned if people aren't going to rise to this challenge over the next few years. This is our great opportunity over the next 10 years to really re-engineer, re-imagine how we practice capitalism and share not just the rewards, but the responsibilities as well, so that we can unlock a better future for ourselves, our kids, and for the planet. And so I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. Change is coming and change is coming fast, right? Simon. If there's one thing we can count on is that there will still always be one Australian in the corner at the party. Right, right. And so when I, if I'm there, I believe someone else turns up. We're on a rotation system. That's exactly. What it is. Exactly. That's one thing we can count. All right, folks. Hey, appreciate you guys hanging on to this episode of the Keep It Real series. Number eight, we're going to keep it going here. Folks, now, if you have any questions, please enter them into the chat box into the right, uh, right there. And we'll all read them off to Simon. We got a few people still on hanging on live. And we appreciate you guys uh, for being here today. So if you have any questions, let Simon know. And, and Simon, just kind of off the cuff, Tell, tell our folks a little bit about uh, this weekend that you just had had. What did it feel like? What did you do to kind of just, you know, relax a little bit? Yeah, I think all of us, because we're all suffering on level, a lot of levels. I think we've got pressure at work to keep our lives together, to pay our bills. We've got the pressure of keeping our families happy and kids studying at home and all of that craziness. We're terrified of getting COVID and maybe being one of the unlucky ones who's going to pass away. We've had so much violence, you know, emotional and, and literal violence in the news cycle for so long. I think all of us have been very compressed. We felt like we're under a lot of pressure. And I felt that as well, you know, with my book. And, and you know, you, you steel yourself against all of this, but it makes you very rigid and, and hard and you're just gutting your way through it. And this last weekend, the President's Day weekend, um, for some reason, the world was quiet where I live. Normally, it's noisy and whatever. It was quiet. And my wife and I just spent a lot of time in stillness, just, in, just seriously, just listening to the stillness all around us, not even talking to each other. And time and again, we were like, oh, my God, it's so quiet. It's so beautiful how peaceful it is because of all this psychic noise that we're dealing with all the time. And I just found myself sort of expanding a little bit from the compression. And I think, mm. I think if we can somehow, and these, the crazy demands that we have, find more stillness and more quiet, and especially communion with nature where you actually just walk in the natural world with bare feet, go down to a beach, walk in a forest, whatever it might be. Um, I think we've got to be very intentional about how we restore ourselves because I think the last year has just been brutal on everyone. So this weekend was just, it's kind of like, you know, you see a, a like a, a, I don't know, a water bottle that's been crushed and it's slowly just went, and started to open up a little bit. So it feels, feels much better. Restorative. Yeah. Uh, now, it also kind of ties into what your former boss is saying about stay light in your head. Right. That's a great message. Staying light in your head. Sometimes, you know, we get overwhelmed and, and things just come at us and it feels we have so much weight that's on us right now, yeah. especially being in the same facility, same house for, for it, so it, long. It, it is hard. And I have to say, I detox from um, screens on the weekend and uh, I didn't look at any news or any social media. So phones, phones and, away? 
Um, little, but not really. I mean, a little bit here and there, oh, okay. but like, okay. I just, I didn't choose, like, I normally look at social media regularly. I normally look at the news regularly because there's so much going on. There's so much churn and it's kind of like, um, an emotional hit every time, both in terms of having a negative effect on your hit, but it's also, you get chemically wired. You're, you know, this is the addictive sort of algorithms that are built into these platforms that you get that hit of information, either affirmation or, you know, your chemical response to something negative and you get adrenalized by it. And you know, you almost become addicted to it. And just stepping away was a big part of that process, I think. And I, you know, you hear about these digital detoxes that people do. And I just, we happened to do that this weekend and it happened to be quiet. And I was just like, oh, you're allowed to be a little bit happier. You're allowed to feel a little bit more expansive. You're allowed to, you're allowed to not know. Mm. You don't need to know what's going on everywhere all the time with everyone. Right. And I, that was just really, um, no, it just felt really good. Uh, looks like we don't have any questions on here, but I was curious. Did you, have you been paying attention to what's going on with like Tim Cook and, and like kind of the battle against Facebook right now? Basically just saying like, Gosh, yeah. you, know, you really don't have to know that much about someone and take that much information. And, and you know, Yeah, I have seen that. And I also saw the article and I'm, I'm, I just, I read this in glance. I don't know if it's true or not, but, you know, it was stating that like, you know, there's a real rivalry going on and Facebook wants to, you know, Mark Zuckerberg was saying that he wanted to, you know, make Apple feel some pain and, and so on. And, and um, you know, there's a big, arguably academic or intellectual debate as to, you know, privacy, data, and what is the right thing to do with it. And Tim Cook has been having this in and around, you know, iPhones and the different Apple products with Facebook for some time. And when there was all those issues about opening people's iPhones, you know, there was, you know, that was a very active dialogue that was going on. Um, I don't know how it's going to shake out. I do, I do like the idea that there are champions with equal resources and weight pushing for greater privacy and greater responsibility in terms of what is ultimately the well-being of people. I think many people have seen The Social Dilemma with mm -hmm. Tristan Harris, that film. And it is quite sobering when you think about how easily we can be exploited, the, the chemistry within us, and, and how quickly that can become determinant in our lives. And what I'm concerned about is that when I was growing up, the world and the real world, like real life, IRL, determined what our experience of life was. And then, you know, after a while, gaming came along, and there were these sort of geeky guys who I didn't understand and girls doing gaming, and they were living in the virtual world a lot, but that seemed like an anomaly. But now it feels like the virtual world defines our real world experience because even before we know it, what we've, sh what we've shared on these platforms has provided predictive analytics so that before we even know that we want to go to a holiday in Hawaii, we're receiving ads about staying in Hawaii. And who here watching this hasn't said something or had a conversation by their phone or by their computer and within an hour or two, there's an ad talking about that to them. And so we have become the product not only in the sense that our data is being sold to advertisers, but we are a function of these platforms themselves. And I think that's really dangerous. Yeah, I, I feel like we don't have any free will anymore. We have free won't. Yeah. We, yeah. It's, like, it's like, you know, I wake up at 3 a.m. I'm having a hard time sleeping. Oh, new mattress ads. Oh, 50% right? off, 60-day uh, back guarantee. Like, oh, yeah, let's sign up. And I got a mattress at 2 a.m. before I even woke up. You know, it's like... It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy how much they know you. It's crazy how much, you know, a, a company can be in your evoked set to make you do things you don't want to do. And it's crazy how 
much, you know, online chatter really messes with your head and plays into the conversations that you have in real life. It, I really like it. Does. It does. Our knowledge is only informed by the information that shapes it. I mean, what we share with each other, we form those opinions hmm. that allows us to align with certain people and really polarize with others. And, you know, think about AI. The whole debate around whether AI is going to be ethical or not is such a dynamic dialogue right now. You know, machine learning and AI, it, it's showing up in very interesting ways, like companies like IBM and Microsoft and so on are being challenged to not only demystify AI, but also to reassure people that it's not going to take their jobs, it's not going to take control of them, it's not going to do harm. And so, you know, we have these exponential technologies, but they're not being sold in well. And what does that look like for these companies? Well, they can't attract the talent they want. They won't, you know, consumers won't adopt it because they don't trust it. And so these are all very real business challenges for these companies. And so, you know, above and beyond social media, it's almost like a little microcosm of what you're going to see with AI and so on, where, you know, you have these technologies that not only have all the data that you've shared with them, but learn and learn faster than humans can learn and learn collectively. What is that going to do to our experience of life? And I think it does concern a lot of people. It's a very dynamic dialogue. And I contrast that quite dynamically with that type of connectivity and the profound, innate, timeless wisdom of connection with each other and the planet. And these two are really just kind of circling each other right now. And, you know, what's at stake in the center? It's arguably, you know, the fate of our species, humanity, because the planet will go on without us. But if we don't really start to value the right things and learn the right things and prioritize the right things and protect the right things, it doesn't matter how much stuff you have. It's going to be a very compromised experience of life that everyone's going to have to face. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. We had Daniel Goleman on the show, the author of Emotional Intelligence, and he was talking about emotional intelligence being a premium, especially for AI, you know, AI taking jobs. How do you understand what's going on versus a computer trying to assess the situation and can you program emotional intelligence into an actual ai where's the humanity in this and that kind of how how is this evolving so i think it, it's an interesting time and simon I, I i know i went over your time today i want to respect that and let's continue the conversation on the next so we did have one question fly in here uh, yeah. from rosalie and rosalie asked uh regenerative regenerative has a network collaborating collaborating uh solving problems how do i send simon the results so he can see we are moving the dial to upgrade communities um my email is simon at wefirstbranding.com simon at wefirstbranding i will put it in the chat here and you can send it and um i do think there is a lot of uh cause for optimism and that's great to hear that you're doing that there's a lot of organizations like Regenerative International and, you know, regenerative is really just the idea that above and beyond sort of, you know, sustainability, we're looking to restore, renew, you know, really build back, uh, you know, the planet on which we live. And, and that has huge implications in terms of our supply chain, what type of businesses we run, how we run them, what products we make and so on. And I think, you know, if there's an opportunity to build communities around regenerative commitments, that's incredibly powerful. But I do think, you know, technology, back to what you were saying, Kevin, is an important role in this because, you know, Tristan Harris used to be the product ethicist at Google, right. and he now runs the uh, uh, Center for Human, Humane Technology. He said that basically we've, we're all having a different experience of reality. 
Kevin's experience of reality is informed by the data and information he shares. And then it gets reflected back to him and you get more and more that gets compounded as it sort of gets reinforced by the content that's shared his way. I have a different experience. Someone else has a different experience. We're not all having the same experience of reality anymore. Hmm. And it's very hard to align around what we're going to do if we're not having the same same experience of reality. Hmm. In which case, as we build community, as we look to regeneration, as we look to kind of, you know, save ourselves as a function of, you know, restoring the planet, we need to align more effectively around what our experience of reality is so that we can work together to solve for it. And so technology is fracturing us in a lot of ways at a time when we've got to come together in service of our shared future. And that's a difficult tension. Love it. Simon, always introspective, always gets the gears going in my brain. Appreciate you coming back on the show Uh, again, my friend. Uh, and don't worry, we're going to make sure we're, when, when, when the parties come back, you'll have another Aussie in the room as well. we'll Thank you. And we'll all have to do a course on small talk. Like, how do you talk to people in a room? How do you shake hands? What does a hug look like? Do you approach left? Do you approach right? How long do you hold on for? And how many pats do guys do on each other's backs every time? One, two, three. How do you treat someone after they sneeze on accident? Right. The room just like spreads to the other side. It's going to be interesting. Exactly. Well, Simon, it's been a pleasure. Folks, if you're listening to this, thank you for being here. This episode is going to be edited and released this Saturday, folks. So make sure you subscribe to the Religious Podcast and make sure you uh, get notified when this episode releases. Simon, been a pleasure having you on the show. Look forward to next month. Thank you for joining us. Great to see you, Kevin. Take care. Bye. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to the eighth episode of the Keep It Real series. With We First, Simon Mainwaring. If you'd like to be a part of the action for next episode, make sure to either click the link in the description or go online to realleaders.com slash podcast where you can RSVP for an upcoming episode with Simon or any of the other real leaders who will be joining the show this month. Also, folks, if you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, scroll all the way down to the bottom on the channel and rate and review the show. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, and how we can improve. Trust me, I read all of them, and it means the world to me to understand that our listeners are paying attention and giving back. That's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader and stay tuned for the next episode.